0: Welcome to To Every Generation the Broadcast Ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields located in Jamesburg, New Jersey where we teach through the entire Bible verse by verse and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning
1: we're going to be in Luke 10 and the last time we covered the parable of the two debtors. This was really a really neat illustration in a parable form that Jesus did about repentance, God's forgiveness, his love, compassion. And what we found in that parable was also others from the outside that are judgmental. And you know, we see this in society. God particularly forgave this woman, wiped away her sins, and Others in society were trying to hold her in a position, and it was very unfair. This morning, we're going to be in the parable of the Good Samaritan, and this is something that even unbelievers, the unsaved, are very familiar with. It's a very common, uh, commonly understood parable. Uh, unfortunately, people make applications today that maybe don't know the Scripture that it really doesn't fit. This parable really expresses two things. Religious presumption. For those that are in religion, that have a presumption that they're good with God because they do rites and rituals, we're going to see what Jesus says about that. We're also going to look at religious hypocrisy. Um, those that have a, you know, they, they're so, they scrutinize every little thing that they tithe and every little rite and ritual, but they don't have compassion for their fellow man. And that's a problem. So as we look at this, you know, we, we can ask our own questions to ourselves is, Where do I fit in? You know, uh, am I a good talker when it comes to Christianity? But when an opportunity comes to help, to show love or compassion, do I also walk the walk? And we'll look at this in three parts. So let's jump in. Luke 10, starting with verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, Jesus, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed on by the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to the inn, took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, or two days wage, and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go, go and do likewise." So the first out of three is the antecedent, or the context, and what happens? If you look at your chronological Bible, uh, the event that, that just preceded this was the 70 that Jesus sends out. And people say, they scratch their head and they go, thought Jesus had 12 disciples. Well, towards the end, Jesus's teachings became ramped up. They became more difficult. But Jesus started probably with hundreds of disciples. And for some today, when they look at ministries that want to grow tremendously, they're curious about That doesn't make any sense based on what we see today in, in, in the Christian culture. But he had at one point 70, and he sends them out two by two. Sort of like a field training for the disciples, you know. They come back, he debriefs them, he tells them how they could change their methodology, sends them out again. And this is really neat because many organizations use this type of training, hands-on, in the field, and they don't realize that it comes from Jesus. Pretty neat. A lot of stuff in that. And then a lawyer comes. Now, a lawyer in those days was a part of the religious echelon. He was an expert in rabbinic law, in God's law, in the Old Testament. And he tests Jesus. Now, this wasn't uncommon to test teachers. And there was a lot of robust debate in those days. You know, I see the United States, too, um, started with a lot of robust debate, if you look at some of the founding fathers and documents and such, and sadly today, especially on college campuses, they're trying to stifle debate that doesn't fit with someone's narrative, and then they're trying to streamline debate to only be on one side, and that's actually chilling, it's frightening. But you see this robust debate back then, And he tests Jesus. He asks him a question. Now, I believe that he did this for two reasons. Number one, Jesus' ways were unorthodox. The religious system had their set ways of doing things, it became stale, it became corrupt. If you look at non biblical sources, secular sources, they'll tell you the same thing. So, what is this Jesus doing? You know, he claims to be the Son of God, he claims to be the Messiah. You know, he, he tests him, he has questions for him. The second thing is we see, and we read it, is that he tried to justify himself, okay? And this is, you know, today people do the same thing, and we call it council shopping. A person has an idea in mind of how they want to live their life. They really don't want anybody to tell them that they're doing something wrong, so they find a the teacher to justify their lifestyle. People do it today. They'll go to different pastors and counselors, and when they hear somebody who says to them, oh, you're fine, they stick with that person. It's called council shopping. <laughs> and this is what the lawyer was doing. He was trying to be justified by consensus, okay? And in, in essence, he says, so Jesus, what do you say about inheriting eternal life, right? And Jesus points him back to the law to keep it perfectly. Now, you may ask me, Pastor Joe, but why didn't he just say, I'm the Messiah, believe in me like he did with the masses, because this is amazing, God knows our heart. Jesus knew this man's heart. He knew that if he said that, he, he wasn't going to listen. Some in that time, the religious system, they pretty much worshiped the law. They worshiped, they worshiped the law more than they worshipped God. So what Jesus did is he took the circuitous route. He didn't express to the Messiah, he said, go back to the law. Because the law will point to the Messiah. So that's where he's taking him. He's showing him the man's failures. And what do we know about keeping the law? We know that even the Ten Commandments, we can't keep them perfectly. Jesus showed us in the Sermon on the Mount that even if we think about hurting somebody, if we get angry to the point of having thoughts of hurting them, even though we didn't do it physically, it's still a sin. And So what does that do? It points us to the fact that we can't do it on ourselves. We need a Savior. We need a mediator. So the lawyer goes to this highest principle, two things. He says to Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, what do you say about it? And he goes, well, two things, love God and love my neighbor. So love God, Deuteronomy 6, 5. And I get the impression that the lawyer thought he had this in the bag. He thought he had this wrapped up. And we're going to see that he didn't he, on, on either count. And as sinners, I don't believe we have the capacity to truly love God on an ongoing basis because we're sinful flesh. You know, God's love for us is always going to outweigh any love that we might express towards him. You know, the religious person thinks he has loving God covered based on his rites and rituals, okay? And the emotional person thinks they have loving God covered based on their feelings. You know, our feelings can deceive us. I love God. It's like a visceral, you know, I feel this, so therefore it must be true. Well, what does God say about loving God? That's interesting. Now, whether we look in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, it's the same answer. If we can go and turn to John 14, John fourteen twenty three through 24. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, you really love the Lord? you really love God? He will keep my word, obedience. And my Father will love Him and we will come to Him and make our home with Him. Very personal, personal, relational God. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And I liken this to to an earthly relationship. And you're gonna laugh because it's gonna sound ridiculous but then I'm going to make the comparison. So if I go home, and I worked, and I walk in the door, and and I say, hey, babe, how was your day? She goes, well, I'm really stressed out. You know, the garbage is full. Your son needs help with his homework. The dogs need to go out. I know just the thing. I go out, I come home with a bouquet of beautiful flowers. She goes, yeah, they're really pretty, but (laughs) the garbage is on the floor now. The dogs peed in the living room, and your son is getting frustrated. I know just the thing. I go out again, I buy her another bouquet of flowers. Joe, are you hearing me? But by the way, this hasn't happened, okay? (laughs) I'm not that dense, (laughs) so. (laughs) But I'm saying to my wife, I'm loving you the way I think you should be loved. And she's saying, could you help me out here? I'm frustrated. We do the same thing to God. But God, I'm gonna keep this right in this ritual. I'm gonna be religious. I'm gonna feel feelings towards you. And God is saying, will you please just obey? what I've set down in, in, in my word. And it's really not that hard. He asks us to love. But in our flesh, we have a hard time loving, don't we? Especially those that aren't close to us. You know, and back then, part of being obedient to the Lord was accepting his, his Messiah. And, and a lot of the religious system did not accept the Messiah. So the lawyer in his self-delusion believes that he has the first part about loving God covered. Now he moves on to the second part. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This comes from Leviticus 19.18. We're going to find that that lesser command, right? Because God should be loved first, ultimately. The lesser command of loving each other, which is still important, he still can't do. So let's check this out. Verse 28, Jesus says, do this. He gives him a command. Do this and you will live. Now this most likely indicates that he wasn't doing it. Think about that, right? The lawyer, the religious person, had a lot of head knowledge, but he wasn't acting on it. And we see that today, don't we? You know, maybe some, maybe we've had a bad experience in church or with religion. Somebody knows a lot, but they're lacking the compassion. They're lacking, you know, and and that's that's tough. That's a tough thing to swallow. They're they're lacking the application. Verse 29, But the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? It's very interesting because for those of you, you know, I have a background in law enforcement, for those of you that have worked in the judiciary or in the legal field or any of that, it's all about defining terms. You know, well, what does that mean, you know, before I answer your question? And it becomes this mucky, mired translation issue when God says, Will you just do what I ask you to do, and we make it more difficult, don't we? So he says, who is my neighbor? He might have thought, well, this will be a quick conversation. I will show Jesus that I love my Jewish brethren, and he'll say, that's great, you're justified, have a nice day. Well, it didn't work like that. And we start to see a parallel between, some of you may say, even with the, what we talked about before, the parable of the two debtors, right? There was Mary who anointed Jesus, before he, he was to be crucified, and some kind of conf, conflate those two, those two issues. And here, some may say, this sounds like the rich young ruler. Yes, there was a very common pattern where people would come to Jesus and ask him, how do I get to heaven? Right? The rich young ruler swore that he could keep the Ten Commandments, and Jesus saw his lack of compassion and love for others, so you're very very wealthy. And you need to help people. You need to you, money is your god. You need to sell what you have. And he's like, Oh, I can't do that. He walked away dejected. Thought he was going to get a good answer, a pat on the back, and he walked away. You wonder why they, they crucified Jesus, don't you? You know, it's almost like when we pray about something, we want something really bad, and God tells us no at times, or He tells us, Wait, we don't like that answer. And I've said this many a times. I thank God over the last 25 years of all of my unanswered prayers. Because I know that I asked for things, not with the right heart, and if he gave, them, gave me everything I asked for, it might have destroyed me. That sounds weird. You thank God for unanswered prayers? Yes, yeah, my wife, we pray together. Thank you, Lord, in my foolishness that you didn't grant me what I was looking for. God is always going to tell us the truth. He's always going to give us what's best for us, even though we may not like it, even though it doesn't sit well. But many back then, and there is a pattern here, many were looking and asking for eternal life. So let me ask you this question. For those of you that have started coming to this church or maybe have not made a profession of faith, are you looking for eternal life? Because the answer is right here. The answer is in Jesus' words. We live in a post-Christian, a post-modern society. We're so enlightened. The world is falling apart, but we're so enlightened. And we're, it's talk, You know, a lot of articles have been written on American culture moving away from God, so archaic, and our society's falling apart. Hatred, division. Are we really that smart as a society in the flesh? I think not. Are you looking for eternal life? I was 25 years ago, and then when I found it, I thought to myself, "Should have done this earlier." What, what prevented me? My own stubbornness. We continue. So the lawyer wants to justify himself, as many do today, as sometimes we do. And what do you hear the arguments? Hey, are you going to heaven? Well, I haven't killed anybody. How often do we hear that? I don't steal from people. I've never beat anybody. I should be fine. In your own mind, you're fine. But that's not how we attain eternal life. You know, the lawyer, who, you know, I, wanna, I love my neighbor. I love people like me who look like me. Who have the same culture as me? Jesus is like, not so fast. He challenges him. What is true love? You know, in the Greek, with the Bible, the language the Bible was written in, the word for love, there's four different words, and there's different layers of love. Here we talk about love all the time. People even say, love ya. It's the culture, you know? Is it really love? What is love? 1 Corinthians 13:4 through 8, the Apostle Paul, in the Spirit, helps us to understand what love looks like. And we have to ask our, ourselves, when I say I love someone, do I exhibit these qualities? Four, love suffers long. It's patient. It's kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up or arrogant. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. Love, God's love is powerful. And the Bible says that God loved the world so much that he sent his son to die for our sins that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. If you really meditate on that, God's love is an amazing love. He came down to the earth to reach a sinful and depraved world and culture, and he still does that. He still tries to reach us and draw us with his Holy Spirit. Here's another one, 1 John 4.20. It says, How can we say that we love God but hate our brother? So what's the natural... Come on, let's, let's get into this. You know, we want to justify ourselves. The Bible says... We say we swear we love God and then we read this and says, well how can we say we love God but hate our brother? The natural response is who's my brother? You see what I'm saying? Define the terms. Who can I love and who can I exclude? You know, let me know the parameters. G, uh, Peter asks Jesus, how much how many times should I forgive? 7 times? Jesus is like 7 times 70 That's a lot of forgiveness. I don't know if I could do that. You know, who's my neighbor? Who's my brother? This is what we do in the flesh. We ask these questions. You know, prejudice is a funny word. And we're going to look at prejudice as we go through the parable. Prejudice can have a positive and a negative connotation. Now, as people of faith hopefully, the majority, if not all, say, well, I'm not prejudiced negatively. I'm not prejudiced against others that aren't like me. But prejudice is like a circle. The positive part of prejudice is to keep people close and love those that are like us. And sometimes people of faith are guilty of the positive part of prejudice. See, when you elevate somebody really high, by comparison, you bring other people down. Okay, And... Prejudice could mean, I like people who look like me. I like people who speak the same language as me. I like people who eat the same foods as me, the same culture. It's a family thing, you would understand. It's an interesting term, because we're going to look at the problem that the Jews and the Samaritans had with each other, and it was prejudice. They both couldn't stand each other. It became a racial sort of thing. But the problem still exists today, and I... Caution, the positive side of prejudice. So Jesus is going to show the lawyer, and maybe some today, that we need to exhibit a love greater than we're already existing. Can, exhibiting, can we do it in the flesh? No. That's why we have to be in the Spirit. Pray for more of the Holy Spirit. Because it's only by the Holy Spirit that we can come out of ourselves and be selfless and be sacrificial. Exhibit the type of love that I just read in 1 Corinthians 13. I want to read another scripture, Luke 6, starting with verse 31, on the rules of the kingdom of life. And he says, just as you want men to do to you, do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. This is powerful. He's speaking to his followers Speaking to those potential followers and saying, Of course, we love people that are like us, our biological family, people that look like us, right? But even unbelievers do that. Take the most notorious violent gang members, murderous. They love each other, they are like family, but they're killers. You see what I'm saying? Jesus is basically saying, You're not doing anything special. 23 or 33, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you for even sinners do the same? And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you for even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back? But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be the sons of the highest for he is kind to the unthankful and the evil therefore be merciful just as your father also is merciful now if you're new to the faith you're new to the scripture you might say pastor joe you're asking first of all i'm not i'm just reading what jesus said some impossible things and my answer would be to you is that's correct that's why we need to be filled with the holy spirit because can i tell you something i I haven't arrived i'm not on some plateau when i leave here I, i go to some high mountain and that's where i live among the clouds and you know, I flow. It, you know. It doesn't happen. I need the Holy Spirit too. And I do pray, Lord, for more of the Holy Spirit. Because only through God are we able to do this. We're so brainwashed on our, in our culture to be negative, to be divisive, to be... And this is a 20... You Watch the news, forget about it. You'll just get angry. It'll just make you hardened in your position. Not good. Here's the funny thing. I looked up the word neighbor right? Love your neighbor, God says. Well, that can be translated if you're looking for definition of the terms. Fellow man or fellow person, neighbor can be any person on the planet. Makes it a lot more difficult now, doesn't it? And this is what Jesus was trying to do in the first century, to show people, including the religious system, you can't attain heaven without a mediator, without a Messiah, right? Without the Son of God. I'll read it again. Verse 30. And we go into the parable now. He says, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He actually did go down because Jerusalem had a higher elevation. When you look on the map in geography, unless you see the mountains, you don't understand that. You know, people's criticism of the scripture, when they really do a little study, they'll see that everything in here is perfectly said. And fell among thieves or robbers, who stripped him of his clothing, wounding him, and departing, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at that place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said, go and do likewise. So two out of three is, here's the parable of the Good Samaritan. We see a few things. And here's the funny thing. People say, oh, the Bible's not relevant. Let me tell you what it talked about 2,000 years ago that we still deal with today. Okay, you ready? Crime. (laughs) Since man sinned, men and women, we have a crime problem. Very simple. Prejudice, which I talked about. Here's a good one. Sociology, the bystander effect. How do you see something happen? How do you go through New York City and see a person get beat and not even call 911? The bystander effect, religious hypocrisy, cloistered ministries and religions ignoring problems in their own communities. It wasn't very close to. It wasn't very far from Jerusalem, where the seat of religiosity was. And sacrificial love. A man goes to from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is about 12 to 15 miles, not far, even if you're walking or on a donkey or whatever, and he gets robbed. Now, some people are confused about the word robbery versus burglary. New Jersey statute is 2C colon 15, which is theft plus assault equals robbery. Okay, so this is robbery he's being robbed, he's being, things are stolen from him, and he's also being assaulted. So that's what we would charge these guys with if we caught them. <laughs> so, and this was common in many remote areas, and even in some countries today in remote areas, it's, it's common. You know, It's a way that some make their living. So the man is heavily injured, he would have died without intervention, and back then you just couldn't call 911 and the ambulance comes and picks you up and takes you to a trauma center. He could have laid out there and eventually died. Okay. So let's look at the reactions of the men who find him. Number one, the priest, a religious man. He sees and he walks by. Now, some would argue for the priest and say, well, if a priest touches someone or something that is dead, he becomes ceremonially unclean. But he didn't even take the moment to at least get close to the guy and see if he was still breathing. Okay? So it shows a a cold indifference to human life. And and again, like I said before, some, not all, in religion have this attitude, this haughty attitude, that they, they have the knowledge, but they don't have the compassion. Now, technically, if you want to argue against what the priest had to deal with, if he actually went to save the guy and he found out that he was dead and he was touching an unclean, a dead body, all he had to do was go through a procedure and become ceremonially clean, and really, in God's eyes... He would see, he would give him a pass because he was trying to help somebody. So the excuse doesn't hold water. Jesus said in Matthew 9:13, "I will have mercy over sacrifice." And this is amazing in God's laws. What's more important? What's higher? Love, compassion, right? These are a high order. Just like gravity holds uh, uh, seven, I don't know, 747, the big planes. Gravity is a law that holds that plane on the ground, but when it picks up enough speed and, and the air goes over the wings the way they're designed, there becomes what's called the lift on the wings, that's called Bernoulli's principle. So while the plane is going fast, the, the plane is actually defying gravity. And, and you can see when two of God's laws come into conflict, love is, is a, and compassion will, will take precedence. So no excuse for the priest. Um, today, sadly enough, if there were people around and they had cell phone cameras, they'd be taking videos of the guy getting a beat down. And they'd be uploading them to YouTube. That's our sixth our society that we live in. Don't call the police, don't help. Let's take videos of it and see who gets the best shots and uh, see how we can upload it and send it to our friends. Have we really evolved, so to speak, as a society? A Levite was the second person. Now, he was not a priest, but he, he helped, in, he, he did a lot of work. They aided the priest's. He was also a religious man, and he sees the same situation, he walks by as well. And it wouldn't be uncommon going back and forth from Jericho to Jerusalem. You realize that the lawyer most likely had a lot of friends that were priests and Levites? Do you think that what Jesus said really touched the nerve in this man? He thinks he's going to come in, hey, we're all in the same thing, we're all religious guys here ask Jesus a question, get a pat on the back, and go on his merry way. The more he deals with Jesus, the more he realizes, this isn't really going the way I expected it to go. Again, you wonder why they crucified Jesus. Because he went, for the Romans, he touched the nerve there. For the Jews, he touched the nerve there. You know, when we read the Bible, he touches a nerve in us. The more we read the scripture, we read and go, oh my goodness, this is something that I really need to change. And and the question is, it's a short distance from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem was the seat of spirituality. The temple was there, right? Uh, Before the Romans destroyed it. Why was it such a dangerous route? In, In our church, in our local church, are we making a difference? Now, it doesn't mean that every church is to be blamed for things that are going on in their media culture, but sometimes they put on blinders. It's too difficult. It's too dangerous. There's nothing we can do. Are we praying? Are we talking to people? Do they know that the strangers know they can come into this building? Do they know that the message of hope and salvation is here, in God's word? You know, are we, or are we just like these other two guys that, you know, it's too dangerous. I'm in a hurry. It's, you know, it's too late, there's no way I can stop now, I'm on a busy schedule. Here's one Christians say to each other a lot, I'll pray for you. When we say that, do we remember to pray for the person? Or is it just what we're expected to say? It's the Christian lingo. Somebody's telling you about a problem, I'll pray for you, got to run. At the end of the day or in the middle of the day, do we remember to pray for that person that we said we would? So it, 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 it does cut. God's word does slice like like it says. It, it it cuts nerves at times. You know, it it we can put on all the pretenses we want, but the word of the Lord is like a sword, and it it reaches deep into the heart, and it exposes things and it exposes hypocrisy. You know, I do have to stop for a minute. This isn't. And and this is what happens sometimes when we read the scripture. We can get completely hyper focused. This isn't for us to leave the building today and look for a robbery scene and try to help the person who just got hurt. Now, it probably never happened in most of our lifetime, the statistics pretty much show. There's a bigger picture here, you know? And and if we get hyper focused on, I got to help somebody who just got beat up we miss the main point. We miss the point of showing love and compassion. Jesus would often use these stories to illustrate a grander truth, a broader truth. And the question is, when we leave and we pray and we go to do our duties during the week, do we have compassion? Do we have empathy? If we're up and somebody's down, do we consider them? Now, I I can't help but say, but the law enforcement officer in me says that, especially ladies, And there are a lot of scams out there, especially for young women, to to abduct them and such. So, I mean, if you're on like a dark road and somebody's laying in in the street, it's possible that somebody's waiting in the woods to, when you get out of your car to take you. So call 911, keep your doors locked. (laughs) Again, I'm not negating what Jesus is saying. Again, Jesus is expressing a broader truth. Because we we could do the same thing. Well, who's my neighbor? Well, who's my brother? Well, I didn't see a robbery scene the last few months, so I'm good. But has our M.O., has our mannerisms changed towards other, others in humanity? Are there small ways that we can help somebody? These are all questions that we can ask. Now, the third person that comes is the Samaritan. Understand that the Samaritan and the Jews had a visceral hatred for each other. And I'll give you a quick history lesson. In 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire, which was a precursor to the Babylonian Empire, attacked the northern kingdom of Israel, the 10 tribes, and they prevailed. And they had this incredible, devious, sinister plan to dilute the faith of the Jews. So what they did was they took their own pagan peoples and sent them over to the northern kingdom of Israel, and had them mingle with the Jews and to try to dilute their faith. But what they also did was they took a lot of the Jews and expatriated them to Assyria. And the idea was, whether they were here or there, that their faith would be diluted. Now, you have to divide this into two sections. The first one was, there was an ethnic issue. And what happened is that the Samaritans, or the diluted peoples in the northern kingdom, their faith was diluted, they had a lot of foreigner in them, and now there was a a natural enmity between the Jews in the southern kingdom who were pretty religious and could claim uh, a pretty pure bloodline. So, you had an ethnic issue and you had a spiritual issue. As far as I'm concerned, in my reading of the Bible, there's never a time that we should look at anybody that doesn't look like us and be able to discriminate against them. That's clear. As a matter of fact, if you look at the Bible, And you look at anthropology, they both say the same thing, that we all came from the same family. We differ on how many years ago? We differ on the location within about 100 miles. That's pretty impressive. So science is catching up with the Bible. God made a a human family with a lot of genetic and DNA diversity, and the more that people procreated, the difference of of the code would come out, in skin tone and fat folds and, um, you know, different things of the human characteristic, but we're all humans. We're all from the same family. So let's put that aside. That was wrong. The other situation was, and, and both sides were at fault, was this was spiritual delusion. So some people really knew the Lord and some people didn't. They brought a lot of their paganism with them. So there was this enmity. Now both sides were wrong. The Assyrians were wrong because they had a goal and it was a nefarious goal. Jesus put a lot of pressure, and he, he expected more from his people because they supposedly had the market cornered on truth. They knew the scripture. So the Jews were wrong in the southern kingdom because they had a lack of love for these people. They didn't consider evangelism. They didn't consider them winning them to the true and living God. And that's where they were at fault. So you can see that both sides, and what happened was the more they isolated themselves, the more they, they grew, the hatred grew. Are we not seeing that in our culture? Do we not need somebody to cross the line and the boundaries to try to be mediators? And, and maybe we're called as believers in our own sphere of influence, in our own communities, to be those mediators. That both sides, maybe they're not thrilled with us, but they kind of have a respect for us because we're willing to go to both sides to bring people together. Interesting, isn't it? There's so many different applications that we could make out of the Scripture. So this is what's going on in 722 B.C. The Samaritan now shows this compassion. Now he's supposed to be, in the culture, the bad guy. He shows this compassion and goes out of his way to help the victim get better. Do you think Jesus ticked off the religious system by making the Samaritan the good guy? You bet he did. People don't like change. Are you saying that I'm doing something wrong? Is that story about me and the defenses go up? Sometimes as Christians we do that right away. The walls come up, you know, the the lasers, the turrets. You're getting too close. want to end the conversation. Let's look at what the Samaritan did. Let's look at the sacrificial love. He takes wine and pours it on the guy's wound. It's all he's got. He's got water. He's got wine, he's got some oil, he's going on a trip. You know, it's not like you, he could load up the SUV with a whole bunch of first aid kit and everything. This was, this was back in the day, okay? So the wine has some alcohol in it, he probably washes out the wounds, cleans it out, the bacteria, the dirt, um, does the best he can. Wine is, acts as an antiseptic because of the alcohol. He takes the oil, helps to soothe the wounds, right? Sets him on his own animal, his donkey. That was the ambulance, by the way. <laughs> it was the old version of the ambulance. Water, you know, you're, you're going through dry, hot climates. Um, it, it had to use it sparingly, but the guy was suffering. Probably gave him some of his water. Takes him to an inn and takes money out of his own pocket so the guy can convalesce. And he tells the innkeeper, just whatever he needs, take care of him. When I come back, I'll give you the difference, if there is one. I mean, today someone part with a $5 bill. You know what I'm saying? They're so stingy. This guy didn't expect this, didn't take enough supplies considering it, but he did what he could. You know, there's a meme, and it's said in different ways. You know, meme, social media. Uh, I have to say that for the people that are older than me. I'm still learning this stuff. But it says, quote, People don't care how much you know of the Bible if they don't know how much you care. It's true. It's true. Three, the outcome. Typical Jesus style, he brings the lawyer into the parable. I love that about him. That's a great way to teach. He tells his parable, and he says to the lawyer, well, who do you think was neighbor? Right? Oh, not an easy one. It's a great way to teach. I believe, it's just me, that as I'm reading it, he couldn't get himself, bring himself to say, well, the Samaritan was the good guy. He said to him, Um, he who showed mercy on him. He couldn't say it was the Samaritan that was the good guy because the Samaritan's never supposed to be the hero. And you know, there is a term that's used in our culture and it's called, and I've said this before, it's called those people. Whoever we are and people like us, look at somebody else and go, those people. The Samaritans were those people. Jesus was saying he saved the guy's life. Honestly, for those who are still struggling with this issue, if you're laying half dead, do you really care what language, what color, what ethnicity the person is that comes to save your life? So why do we do that when, we, when things are going well? You know, if you're in a house fire, you don't care what the person looks like that barges through your door and grabs you and picks you up and pulls you out to safety. It really doesn't matter at that point. And Jesus is saying, well, how about we do that before we have to get to that point? So a few things that we can look at, four points that I want to make is, out of the priest, Levite, and Samaritan, who are we most like? Are we too busy to help, to get involved? You know, similar to the parable of the two debtors, you can see religious presumption, Well, because I do these things, I'm good with God. Not if you don't have love and compassion. Religious hypocrisy. All knowledge, no love. You know, I find today that even when I look at TV and and politics, you find that, that those scream the loudest about the poor, and you find out their backgrounds, they're making an awful lot of money off the poor, and it's so sad. Jesus even said the poor you will always have, because humanity doesn't want to fix the problem. There's a lot of money to be made off of the poor people. Uh, A. Brooks wrote a book, Who Really Cares? And you'd be surprised. Who really does give the most charitably? um, It's a good book to read if you get a chance. Do we do the bare minimum of what is expected of us when it comes to love? Two, do we try to break down barriers in a good way or do we just reinforce the old ones? Do we only hang or place a high importance on people like me, like us, Three, are we doers or are we, are we just talkers? Talking a situation to death. James 1 says, especially the, the person of God, so to speak, who talks a good talk, a good game, but doesn't do, James 1 says that if that's us, we're deceiving ourselves, we're fooling ourselves. D.L. Moody, the great preacher many years ago, went out on the street corner and just started sharing the scripture. And a few people gathered around. He, he did this for hours. More people gathered around. And this was in Indianapolis. And he decided, you know what, how about we go into the local opera house? And they went in there. Big crowd. There was a certain time where he realized that he had to get out. And the people had to get out because the convention was coming in. You know what the convention was there for? They were actually going to discuss how to reach the masses. Look at the irony of that. D.L. Moody was just doing it. And there are some in the umbrella of faith that talk the situation to death, and they never do. It's all theory. It's all head knowledge. A lot in here. And four, the lawyer asked the wrong question. He says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life is not an inheritance. Today, some people think, what do I have to do to merit eternal life? as if we could earn it, or we could pay it back, or we could put a mortgage on it at a low interest rate. You know what? Eternal life is a free gift. And you know how we get that free gift? By trusting in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And you know what comes with that? The Bible tells us, 2 Corinthians, I believe, 122, is that he also seals us with his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit gives us the ability for that agape love, that higher order of love. And you'd be amazed when you become a Christian and you're really walking with the Lord and five years goes by and you look back and you go, I'm not the same person I used to be. I can't believe it. And not in a a situation or a sense of pride, but in a sense of amazement saying, that's not me, that was the Lord. So I want to encourage you, if we could boil it all down, especially if you're saying this is impossible, you know the Sermon on the Mount was impossible. Jesus was saying, you know, y- you say you don't do, you don't steal and you don't murder, you don't do that, but if you if you do it in your heart, you've already committed a sin. I could imagine the masses going, you wonder why so many people left him. This is the Son of God. See, because God's ways are it, are antithetical to our ways as human beings, and it, it it has to be by a work of the Spirit to come to Christ to receive of His free gift of salvation when all of a sudden we start to change from the inside out. Our society says you need to change from the outside in. You know, you just need more money. You just need a better environment. You just need a different spouse. This one's getting on your nerves. You just need more, you know, and it doesn't change a lot of people. It doesn't change anybody, maybe just for a small amount of time. But the truth is, God says, I want to change you from the inside out. So once you're changed on the inside, then all of a sudden it doesn't matter if the circumstances change. So I want to encourage you as we close, Jesus Christ is available. Jesus Christ is drawing you through this message. And you know what? You come forward if you want to lay hold of that eternal life as a free gift, and he'll do
0: the rest. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields.